Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Podium and Panel Podcast, and Happy New Year as we begin year two of the podcast. Today, like most weeks, we are going to cover three recent oral arguments, uh, but like the last episode, I believe, we'll cover two in one segment. The first two cases are September Webster versus Receivables Performance Management and Laura Ewing versus MedOne Solutions LLC, heard back-to-back by the Seventh Circuit and involving the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act or FDCPA. Uh, issues. The third case today is is a Supreme Court case heard, I believe, in November, American Hospital Association versus Becerra, an important case involving the Chevron Doctrine. Uh, For all the attention that the abortion and gun cases heard by the Supreme Court this term uh, hold, perhaps the most important case that has the potential for the most wide-ranging impact on a lot of things uh, might be this case. Uh, in this case, concerns an obscure and arcane Medicare statute, Medicare statute. Uh, but what it is really on the table is the continued viability of Chevron deference. We'll talk more about that in a few uh, minutes in the second segment. So with that, let's turn to our first two cases. Both involve, as mentioned, the FDCPA, September Webster versus Receivables Performance Management, and Laura Ewing versus MedOne Solutions, LLC. Heard back-to-back, as mentioned by the Seventh Circuit. Questions in these cases include, does a plaintiff have to come forth with evidence of standing at the summary judgment stage before the district court when the defendant does not raise the issue of standing until the matter is on appeal? And as Pat and I have discussed on many uh, episodes, uh, the Seventh Circuit really is focused with a laser intensity on these alphabet uh, statutory regimes with this issue of standing. The second question is, does a plaintiff have standing if she can show that she was emotionally disturbed by a debt on her credit report that she disputes and that was removed when suit was filed? And we can get into the merits of whether you can have emotional distress because something's on your credit report, but uh, alas, that that is an open question. Uh, Does a plaintiff have standing for the failure of the creditor to report that a debt was disputed in the absence of evidence that the credit score was affected? and no evidence that any potential creditor read the report and declined to extend credit because of the debt not being in dispute. And again, Pat and I have talked about BIPA, and again, uh, no evidence of anybody's information being disclosed. Similar types of issues here, right? If there's no real harm, then then what, what is the injury? Those are among the questions the Seventh Circuit will address when it decides September Webster versus Receivables Performance Management and Laura Ewing versus MedOne Solutions, LLC. The oral arguments were argued back-to-back with the same plaintiff and appellant's counsel, and both involved the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. In Ewing, the creditor failed to report to the credit agencies that the debt was disputed, allegedly in violation of Section 1692E8 of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, The district court granted summary judgment to the creditor on the basis that the plaintiff did not suffer any injury because there was no fourth party publication and no evidence that the credit score was adversely impacted. On appeal, the creditor raised standing and Judge Hamilton was very skeptical that this failure was fair to the plaintiff who did not have the opportunity to develop the record. Pat, tell us about oral arguments in these two cases. Thanks, Dan. So I'm going to start where Dan just left off and play the portion of the exchange uh, in the Ewing case between Judge Hamilton and ju- and and the advocate for the defendant appellee, uh, where they raise this issue of standing on appeal. And let's just say in both of these arguments, Judge Hamilton was very very active. Um, <laughs> he 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 was not buying. I don't think what the appellees were selling, either on the merits or on this procedural question in the Ewing matter. Not um, at all. So you could hear it. And uh, uh, the title of our episode is is taken from this. 
uh, exchange. So let me cue this up and you can listen to this colloquy, uh, which uh, did not, uh, may not have gone as well as counsel for Apple might have hoped. I think you get the flavor. Uh, as, as I think that's Judge St. Eve coming it in. Is. or Yeah, Judge St. Eve comes in and, <laughs> and, and it kind of doubles down. You know, she comes in from the top rope after after Judge Hamilton has put him on the mat and said, now, let me get this straight. Because, yeah, I mean, they, they, they both, uh, both Judge Hamilton and Judge St. Eve were both district court judges. And actually, that came up in one of the arguments that one of the lawyers had actually tried a case, at least one, in front of Judge Hamilton. Um, so they both had dealt with this issue as district court judges. Uh, and now they're hearing someone come in and say, you know, they have to raise this. They have to come forward with their standing evidence, even though you didn't raise it. Now, let's make a let's contrast this for a moment. Uh, in federal court, standing is never waived because it's a constitutional issue. It's a subject matter. It's because federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. In Illinois state court, as we've talked about, standing is waivable because because state courts are courts of general jurisdiction. And in Illinois, you have to raise it either by affirmative defense or a motion to dismiss based on 619A9 that there's no standing, or, or I think it would be an A9 motion. So and if you don't, then it's waived. So this is a different different system entirely in that regard. So I I, I think that Judge Hamilton's got a point. If there's a, if there's something lacking in the development of the record on the standing in the in the Ewing case, that's not the fault of the plaintiff. That's the fault of the defendant for not having raised the issue. Now contrast that with the Webster case. And in the Webster case, they did have a full, fully developed record on the standing. This is the one where she testified she was emotionally distressed by this debt that I think was owed to the cable company that she said she had canceled the cable debt. And right. you know, this still showed up on there. And the counsel for the appellee is like, yeah, that's right. She did have this debt. We didn't take it off. But this was a woman who had $40,000 in other debt, hundreds of other claims that she hadn't paid or 
something like that. You know, all these other claims she hadn't paid. This had no effect on her debt, on her credit rating. Uh, yes, this was a mistake, but this didn't actually harm anybody. Um, I also want to pick up on something that was raised by a, a colleague of mine from the Professional Liability Defense Federation when I posted on this on LinkedIn, Rick Purr from the uh, Kaufman uh, Dollowich firm. He's in uh, Philadelphia. And he said, you know, I really don't know. He represents defendants in these cases. Uh, he says, I don't understand uh, filing these or raising all these standing arguments because the plaintiff's just going to turn around and file the case in state court. You right. know, what, what, what good does this really do? You just get to be in state court, which I'm not really sure that's where you want to be. Uh, as I just mentioned, state courts are courts of general jurisdiction. They can hear these cases. Uh, there's nothing to stop them. Uh, they file them in federal court for a variety of reasons. There's certainly federal, uh, the, certainly the judges are more familiar with the cases. They know how these work, but there are no standing. The standing doctrine is much looser in state courts than it is in federal court. Um, so let's the judge uh, Hamilton raised, you heard it in the clip there, fourth party publication. So what happened here? So what happened here is these entities were collection entities and they reported or failed to report in the case of the failure to report the dispute which is this six ninety? This is which is this six ninety two e eight requirement that you re, that you put you include in there this dispute that there is a dispute, and this right. dispute didn't end up in there. And so when he's talking about with a fourth party, and this gets us onto the Ramirez case that I'll refer that I'll talk about in a second, is so the the collection entity reports to the credit entity, the credit reporting agency, TransUnion, Equifax, these folks. Um, that there is this uh, this debt. And then the question is, did the credit reporting agency then report it to some other potential creditor? Or, you know, and did the creditor look at it and rely upon it? And so there were several references to, uh, to the fifth, sixth, and seventh footnotes in the Ramirez versus TransUnion case in parsing out the different categories of the class there. So from the fifth set, so the Ramirez case, this is the case where the guy goes in to buy a car. He's with his family. He's on the OFAC list, which says he's a terrorist or a drug dealer or something. He's not right. a terrorist. He's not a drug dealer. He just has the same name as some terrorist or drug dealer. They don't sell him the car and he was embarrassed. And they got this giant judgment uh, out of that uh, because there weren't reasonable procedures put in place to prevent him from not being on the OFAC list. And that was the claim against TransUnion. So for the reasonable, the court says for the reasonable procedures claim, the court held that the 1,853 class members whose reports were sent to third parties had standing since their injuries resembled defamation. However, the other 6,332 class members lacked standing because their information was not disseminated, so they lacked this essential element of publication in a traditional defamation suit. Actually, this is a commentary on the opinion, not the footnote. I misspoke. The right. court rejected the argument that the inaccurate that the inaccurate but internally maintained files created a risk of future harm. So th there's this category. This is, the question is, do these two claimants, Webster and Ewing, fit into, are they more like the 1,853 who did have standing or more like the 6,332 who didn't? And then, so then we have this, now we'll get to the sixth footnote. For the first time in this court, the plaintiffs argue that TransUnion, quote, published, end quote, the, the class members' information internally for example, to employees within TransUnion and to vendors that printed and sent the mailings that the class members received. This new argument is forfeited in any event unavailing. The many, this is from the majority opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh. Many American courts do, did not traditionally recognize intracompany disclosures as actionable publications. Which brings us to the seventh footnote. <laughs> All this action going on in the footnotes, that's what they're arguing about in the, in the oral argument. Right. These lawyers know these footnotes like the back of their hand. It's unbelievable. They live by this opinion because it's such a big opinion in this area. A plaintiff's knowledge that he or she is exposed to a risk of future physical, monetary, or reputational harm could cause its own current emotional or psychological harm. We take no position on whether or how such an emotional or psychological injury could suffice for Article Three purposes. So this is the little crack in the door that the plaintiff's trying to put himself, that Webster's trying to put herself in so, for example, by analogy to the tort of intentional affliction of emotional distress, the plaintiffs have not relied on such a theory for Article Three harm. They have not claimed an emotional distress injury for the risk to, the, to 
risk that a misleading credit report might be sent to third-party businesses, nor could they have done so, given that the 6,332 plants have now established that they were even aware of the misleading information. Now, Webster was aware of the information. That's what she claimed caused her the distress. Right. And so she's trying to put herself into the 1,853 class group as opposed to the 6,332 class group. So you kind of get the idea of where they're of where plants are going and trying to put themselves in. Hey, I've got a real injury. It doesn't have to be much. A scintilla is enough. Yep. It just has to be something. So that kind of gives you an idea of where these cases are going post-transunion. Very interesting set of cases, Dan. It is. And uh, the, the song comes up on the road to nowhere. In, in these cases, I think I'm pre predicting where I'm going with predictions sort of go wrong. Uh, but we'll see. Well, I mean, I, I think that they, I, I, road to it, nowhere. I mean, it doesn't have to be they, much. They, I know they may, they, they may crack in, but uh, for, for they, further deliberations, but yeah, I, I think they may get over this hurdle, whether they, they get over the next one, especially where they didn't raise the issue in Ewing, you know, they're right. going to get there. I think they're going to get their crack, um, you know, uh, to go back and try to give their, give their, uh, uh, give their evidence, whatever it might be. Yeah, of, no, I, I, I think you're right. But I, I just think long term, I think these. I, I mean, like you said, you don't need much, but but it seems here. I, I'm not sure where this is at. It. I'm not sure either. Long in the long term, they're just trying to come up with something because they've got right. they've got these cases, and you know they filed these long before TransUnion came down, and they're trying to save them. They're trying to get something out of them. So right. if they can beat the appeal, then they can they can turn they can turn it into something. All right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with American Hospital Association versus Becerra. Back for segment two of episode 74 of season two of the Podium and Panel podcast. This is the first recording of the second year of the Podium and Panel podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. So we're back to discuss American Hospital Association versus Becerra. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because when we discussed Americans versus Prosperity versus Becerra, it then, that then turned into Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta. That's the Bonta. same Xavier Becerra, who was the Attorney General of California and was the defendant in that case, uh, and now is the uh, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Service. Uh, um, so that's, that's, that's the same Xavier. He gets sued a lot. Uh, this fella, as does the Attorney General of California, because the AFP versus Bonta case started out as AFP versus uh, versus Harris. When, so. when, when you're a public <laughs> official, uh, it sucks because landmark cases are constantly named after you, right? It's always uh, as we as we <laughs> learned, or at least I learned in the uh, in the Texas abortion case that it is. The, this in Ray estate of young, is that it? The, yep. the estate, estate of young case is what creates this whole thing. You sue them in their official capacity in order to get around the problem of not being able to sue them personally or anybody else to sue. And if you're going to join the official that has the enforcement authority, then you've got someone you can get a relief against. So right. that's how this works. So back for this case, American Hospital Association versus Becerra, which deals with the Chevron doctrine. This is, we're not going to get into the minutia of this language of the statute. It's uninteresting and it's frankly not important. It doesn't matter. The, the government has come up with this cockamamie, frankly, uh, what little I understand about this cockamamie interpretation about reimbursements on drugs for, for hospitals. Uh, and the hospitals aren't happy about it and they want their money. And uh, they uh, have. And there's different has, pricing. It's, yeah. And yeah. so. What Chevron deference deals with, this is what the case is really about, is about Chevron deference. And this comes from a case called Chevron versus uh, um, um, National, oh, help me out here, Dan. It's the uh, environmental case. National Resources Defense Council. Thank you very much. National Resources Defense Council. Exactly. Uh, so Chevron deference is the doctrine whereby courts defer to an agency's interpretation of, of ambiguous federal statutes so long as the agency's interpretation is reasonable. Given the scope of federal regulations, this decision, if it even chips away at never mind overrules the doctrine, could have a profound effect on American law as most law comes from regulation, not statute. This is to be distinguished from our deference, which is the deference given to an agency's interpretation of its own rules, 
that are right. ambiguous. This is an this is interpretation of an agency's interpretation of its authority or what or or a, or a govern of a statute, and it's got to be within their within their scope. But it's is it so? The first question is: Is it ambiguous? So, Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, this oral argument and this, frankly, very, very important case? Sure. And as Pat said, the the Medicare, the obscure uh, rule that's at issue here, uh, we're not going to get into it. Uh, if, if you're interested in it, you can go look it up and 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 read the underlying cases um, and find out from there. Um this court, the Roberts court, uh, and especially with, with the elevation of Gorsuch um, uh, and Kavanaugh, uh, but, but also Alito and Thomas have been looking at this for some time uh, at the Chevron Doctrine. And I'll talk a little bit more about the Chevron Doctrine that, that Pat did. Uh, thanks, Pat. Um, uh, one of the interesting things and I th that I noted uh, and I've written about is, is at one time, uh, the Chevron Doctrine. This was a 1984 case. It was the the Rehnquist Court. Uh, the, it was something that conservative justices, including Antonin Scalia, uh, was very much in favor of. Uh, but in recent years, it's been revisited. Um, if you look at the Code of Federal Regulations, and and what, one of the things that uh, is the reality of our federal government is we have half a million employees or whatever the hell it is. We have four million. Four million. Something, something absurd. Well, think but about whatever, the military. The military yeah. alone has two million. Yeah, I'm talking about just other. Yeah, but yeah, whatever it is, it's a huge, humongous number. And what happens, uh, especially in recent Congresses, is that Congress cannot get anything pretty much out of out of there, and so they defer everything to agencies, and and they just give the basic, very high uh, level blueprints of what what the law is, and then the Affordable Care Act, which we've covered on here. Everything. The Affordable, the Affordable it, it, Care it, Act is a great example because everything had to come out of the enacting regulations. Dodd-Frank is another example where the statute is thousands of pages. The regulations are tens of thousands of pages um, yep. in both cases. And so, so as Pat said, the, the Chevron deference doctrines, it's a term coined after the landmark case Chevron USA, Inc. versus National Resources Defense Council, Inc., 468 U.S. 837 from 1984. And as Pat said, it's judicial deference given to administrative actions. Uh, and, and in Chevron, the Supreme Court set forth this legal test as to when the court should defer to the agency's answer or interpretation, holding that such judicial deference is appropriate where the agency's answer was not unreasonable, as Pat said, so long as Congress had not spoken directly to the price, precise issue at question. Uh, the scope of this deference doctrine is that when a legislative delegation to an administrative agency on a particular issue or question is not explicit, but rather implicit. The court cannot substitute its own interpretation of the statute for a reasonable interpretation made by the administrative agency. Um, and, and Justice Stevens wrote that, that uh, opinion. Uh, and, and if you listen to this oral argument in uh, this case, uh, what uh, several justices asked about was that the Chevron uh, case and in, 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 in a footnote again. There's a lot of footnotes, just like Pat mentioned in the uh, in the first segment. A lot of footnotes in the Chevron case that that lawyers know, uh, especially that deal in this administrative morass. And uh, what what the justices were asking both advocates about at the oral arguments in Becerra was uh, this whole toolbox of of regular statutory interpretation that's to be used. Um, now, one of the one of the debates in this case is that there was specific language in the statute. Again, we're not going to get into the minutia, but there was some, uh, a specific language in the statute, and so there was some questions by Breyer, which which is always you know a, a, a walk down memory lane or whatever lane it is. He he, uh, as we've talked about in this podcast, he does long and winding, uh, multi directional types of questions. Uh, sometimes there's more statements. But they talked about this full toolbox and whether it was used. And I thought it was interesting because the respondent in this case, at one point, he said, I don't think she Chevron is necessary in this case. I don't think that particular application of Chevron is necessary in this case either. He was saying that, again, because of the way the statute was was designed and things, that there was no uh, need for uh, them to go down uh, that path. Um, the... Um, uh, and Gorsuch kind of pushed back on that. 
Um, uh, and question, I think it was Gorsuch that said, what's ambiguous enough to trigger deference to the government? And then they, they had a lot uh, of, of back and forth. Um, and and uh, uh, as mentioned, uh, Gorsuch, Alito, Kavanaugh, probably Barrett. Um, again, there's this revisit. And as Pat said, I think, I think the key takeaway from this case is that if you if if five justices or six justices or even more, it's hard it's hard to tell uh, where all nine of the justices are on the on the Chevron uh, doctrine. I know there's been some uh, dissents, I think, by Kagan before, uh, with respect to to some uh, questions or discussion of it. Uh, but I know Alito and Thomas for sure, in prior terms, have said that they need to take it head on the Chevron doctrine and revisit it. And again, this is something that we've talked about on prior uh, podcast, Pat, including the abortion case, but in other instances as well, that, uh, you know, Thomas would say that, again, stare decisis in the Chevron case, this landmark case from 1984, that you just don't leave it in place just because it's been around for a long time, right? If you got it wrong, fix it and move on. And so that's what's really at play in this case. Um, and as Pat said, uh, th this case, uh, you know, the, the other cases are more lightning rod social issues that will be decided in June or July. Uh, but this this case is really um, much more important on a broader scale because if, in fact, you get rid of the Chevron doctrine, uh, then you don't anymore defer, right? And you can't have these just kind of broad, you know, whatever, whatever the agencies do is fine. There's going to have to be much more work in Congress to make sure that they God set forbid, forth, right? Well, right, <laughs> and it, it it really will put to stop a lot of stuff. Not that much substantive legislation gets out at any, you know. In Trump's presidency, there was ma one major bill so far. In Biden's, there's one, you know, infrastructure. The the the, the, the Congresses in the last decades have been pretty uh, disastrous in terms of actually moving the country forward on things that need to be done. But that's a whole other subject. And so that's really what's at stake in this case is, is again, this revisit. And, and Chevron, if you look up the, if you, if you look at the transcripts of, of the oral argument or listen to it, Chevron comes up repeatedly on both petitioner and respondent and their views on it. And, and some of the justices, unlike in some of the cases where Pat and I have said some of these people, just like Justice Hyman, not very good poker players, in this case, there wasn't as much forecasting of that, but you kind of get a flavor, as I mentioned, from some of the questioning about the Chevron doctrine. And there, there was point blank questions saying, is the solution here? Uh, for well, that was us? Justice Thomas's first question. Right. Is, is, <laughs> should we overturn the Chevron, right? Should we? And so that, that was his one of his few questions. He didn't really ask a lot of questions in this uh, uh, on, the, on the individual uh, question, he did not ask questions this time, which has been unusual as we've talked about in this current term and the current structure. Uh, but he did ask that up front and and said, you know, that's what he's focused on. Here? And so, so you know where he's coming from, you know where Gorsuch I think's coming from. But other than that, I think we'll see. Um, when we make predictions, sure to go wrong. Pat and I will uh, make our predictions, but that's kind of what's at stake here. So now that we've built this up. Let's talk about a couple things is that, you know, that they they could reach the Chevron question. But in, in listening to some folks who know more about the substance of this particular question, they may not have to because it, it didn't so sound Chevron, like it. Chevron has two steps. The first step is to figure out mm -hmm. is the statute ambiguous. And the second step is if it's ambiguous, has the agency come forward with a reasonable interpretation? Now, ambiguity simply means there's more than one reasonable interpretation. In the insurance context, we've talked about this, the insurer loses because the insurer wrote the statute, or wrote the policy, rather. In the, the, this is what makes this a bit strange, and, and why I think there's a judicial ethics problem with, with Chevron, and that is that the, the judge is putting the finger on the scales in favor of one of the parties and saying, you party who are just interpreting the thing, you didn't write the thing, we're going to give you deference. And the question in this case, they, and the reason why they may not have to reach this is because some commentators have said they don't think the statute's ambiguous. They right. think that the government's interpretation is just plain wrong. 
and there is only one interpretation and it favors the hospitals and that they this may be an eight to one or a nine oh decision with Breyer maybe be in dissent where he would find it ambiguous and maybe favor the government. The other eight seemed to be in favor of, yeah, this is the government's just all wet and the 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 petitioners win because their interpretation is the only reasonable way to read the statute. The government just doesn't have a re- and if that's the decision, they don't have to reach the broader question of Chevron. Now, if they do, then you're going to start seeing fractures all over the place because taking down Chevron deference is a grave threat to the current administrative state. It, it, it really uh, it, it, it has a hard it has a hard time existing, whether you like the administrative state or you don't like the administrative state. The administrative state can't it, it has to fundamentally change how it operates if Chevron yes. deference is is out the window. Uh, so it's this is potentially a really, really important case um, if they find that the provision is ambiguous and that the and then they reach the question of whether the government's interpretation or they just say, you know what, we're not giving you deference, we're overruling the thing or whatever it is they end up doing. Right. That 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 that's all bets are off if they find it ambiguous. You, know, you could find opinions all over the place because not only Breyer but certainly Sotomayor and uh, Kagan. And based upon his in, in his institutional predilections, Roberts uh, and, and and Kavanaugh, you could see being a bit uh, hesitant to overrule. They're going to be he may be more incrementalist with regards to overruling uh, Chevron. I don't think there's enough. Uh, I'm not so can, sure about that. Well, maybe I, I don't think there could be enough said about his experience on the D.C. Circuit, having dealt with these things a lot. Um, that can't be discounted, um, and, and that he. You, the nature of the D.C. Circuit is to see a lot of these administrative cases. And so, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see where they go. And then and then one person we haven't mentioned, and I, I don't think we know where she stands on it, is Justice Barrett of any idea. Yeah. I think we have a pretty good yeah. idea where Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas stand on the issue. The others are a bit a bit harder to – some of the others are a bit harder to figure out. So I, th- um, I, th- I, th- I think I, 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 my, my prediction, though, not, not necessarily where the case is going, but my prediction is, is that the reason I took this case, they didn't need to resolve a Medicare question. I could have let the Ninth Circuit stand or DC Circuit, DC Circuit um, is, is that this is the case where they got enough people to grant cert to tackle this head on. They've been playing they, with they, it for, for terms and now they, they could. But you also see Robert's. Wanting to wanting to find if he can find a way to fashion a majority that doesn't go that far, you can I, see that maybe happening. He's lost. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he has. We'll find yeah, out. This he, is, he has. This this this. Well, he's only lost the court if he's lost Barrett. Uh, and, and if he if he can if he can hold the three liberals and him and 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 Barrett, he can he he can fashion a majority and and maybe the. Then the conservatives are going to have to toe the line and 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 have a more a more uh, restrained opinion. I mean, it's gonna. Although, it's very hard to tell. Yeah, I'd read some stuff though about Barrett. I, I think she is uh, one of her specialties, isn't it? Is administrative law. So again, she's probably got opinions. I'm sure. Oh, I, I have no doubt she has opinions. <laughs> we just don't know what they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no doubt she has a view of the whole thing. I'm not suggesting that she hasn't thought about this. I'm suggesting we just don't know what her thoughts are yet. We're going to find out a lot uh, about what she has to say about this. Um, so this is a, a very interesting case to watch and a very important one that got substantially overshadowed between the gun case, the abortion cases. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with a whole lot of cases that got decided recently. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Three of episode 74 of the Podium and Panel Podcast and turning to... Our prediction sure to go wrong as we covered two cases in the first segment, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm now 95, 16, and 7, and Pat's 94, 17, and 7. Uh, we had three decisions this past week since our last uh, taping. We got right the Second Circuit case on COVID-19 business interruption. 
10012 Holdings versus Sentinel Insurance. Uh, again, the court uh, joined the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. And 11th. Uh, and 11th. That there was not business interruption coverage for COVID-19. The slackers. The slackers in the first, third, and fourth. What are they, And the fifth. What are they doing? Right. right. And I think they all have cases, don't they? I, they, I can't imagine they don't. <laughs> I can't imagine they don't either. So, um, and, and very similar. No no, no uh, physical loss in the premises. The, the same things we've talked about. Um, well, one of the things that was big issue in this case was we thought that they might, there was a lot of questioning, especially from one of the judges, about certifying the certifying. question to the New, to the New York, uh, um, to the, uh, was it the New York Appellate Court? Court of Appeal. Yeah, the court, New York Court of Appeals, which is their highest court. Um, and they uh, they did not, obviously. Um, right. None of the courts, that the Ninth Circuit, there was that suggestion. The Seventh Circuit, there was a mild suggestion of that. Yep. Um, and, and the only one that's done it so far is a district court in Cleveland. Right. <laughs> and that yeah, case yeah. is going to get argued in February before the Ohio Supreme Court. We're going to talk about that because as, as important as it is that these federal courts are ruling in favor of the insurers, this is only, this is the prelude. The real, the, this is an issue of state law, and ultimately, if the state courts begin to favor the insurers, then then we're actually talking about something. But if they begin to go the other direction, or even if one or two goes the other direction in favor of the insurance, all bets are off as to where this stands. The insurance only need one court yep. to favor them, one court of review to favor them. Now, so far, they haven't. But if they get one, the game changes substantially. And, 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 and this... And this opinion talked about the certification issue and said, look, there's a number of cases percolating in New York. They'll get to the uh, court court of appeal. And, you know, we just don't need to go there. So they, they can decide when they decide, but we know our answer. The suggestion of that one judge, as you mentioned, Pat, was that uh, they could certify but kind of indicate where they were heading. And so that kind of defeats the purpose anyway, because what's the purpose of certifying if you're going to rule one way anyway, right? Uh, you know. But I'll, I'll say this, you know, and then we saw this in the most recent certification from the Seventh Circuit on the BIPA case in the Cathrone case. You know, they give their view of the world and then they give the question at the end. Right. So right. it's not like they're they, they kind of say, well, we I really know. they're doing more. They did. They, they do more than just it's 15 pages. This opinion. Right. Uh, <laughs> instead of just right. certifying the question, that's one page. They can do that right. with a caption. Uh, so they're they're giving the court. Hey, here's what we're thinking. But we need we need you to clarify the issue. So yep yep um, not not much uh, new there. No. Uh, moving to Jackson versus Kane County, uh, this is the case where the young lady, uh, unfortunately, she she squeals her tires. The cops the cop chirps his siren. He f activates his lights for a moment. She doesn't stop. She continues to drive at a normal speed, makes a stop sign, makes another stop sign, gets to a stoplight, makes a left-hand turn at the stoplight on a major road, and then decides to floor it and gets up to nearly 80 miles an hour, at which point she loses control of her automobile and, uh, and, and, and dies, unfortunately. Uh, her estate files a lawsuit against the officer, the Kane County Sheriff, the report, the, uh, the dispatching, the multi-agency dispatching entity, the supervisor, everybody. everybody, and the uh, trial court dismissed the plaintiff's complaint on a six one five, no six one nine. Sorry, six one nine. It was it was immunity, uh, but it was on the pleading. In any event, it was a six one nine because they were applying an immunity that there was no willful and wanton misconduct, and the court essentially said that you know he, the the the. The there weren't enough facts. We thought they might we might remand it to allow her to plead some more facts. They didn't do that. Uh, they they held that there just simply wasn't evidence wasn't pleading of willful and wanton misconduct because essentially they commented that nearly every one of these high speed chases starts with a non felonious you know traffic issue a, a broken tail light speeding running a stoplight something. And then it turns into a, uh, you know, a, a high-speed chase. Situation. And then that's a dangerous situation. It didn't start out that way in most of these cases. Right. Um, and it's not willful on the part of the officer because they're just doing what they're trying to do. And then he fell back. Right. Uh, you know, he he, di he didn't pursue. Once she got up to 80, he only, with the highest speed he went to was 60-some. He falls right. back. She loses control of the automobile and unfortunately uh, dies. 
So I, the thing that's interesting here also is that he, he did not follow their regulations. But as we've right. talked about before, the regulations don't create the duty and they surely don't create violation of them. Surely doesn't create a willful and wanton situation. Right. We're going to hear more about uh, car chases, a different immunity, though, uh, in the Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village case, which we talked about um, earlier uh, in earlier episodes. The PLA was granted in that case. And actually, the opinion in that case was cited in this opinion in Jackson, notwithstanding right. that PLA had been granted. This is a distinction with Indiana. In Indiana, when transfer is granted, the appellate court decision is vacated upon upon acceptance of the transfer, and so you can't cite it because no, I mean it's, it's not an opinion anymore. It gets a red flag on Alexis. In Illinois, it continues. So it, they they cited this opinion. They had to know that right. PLA had been granted. Uh, it wouldn't take much to figure that out. So it's interesting they would cite a case that's in that posture to support their position um, or, or the outcome. So. Just something to keep in mind, uh, and that's another distinction with with Indiana and Illinois, and the transfer issue we've brought up a lot with regards lot. To, to to Indiana and the the transfer procedure. That's one of the quirks of the transfer procedure, is that uh, the case the, the opinion is vacated upon grant of transfer, which is one of the reasons why not granting transfer really matters because the case right. the appellate court decision remains in force until the appellate the Supreme Court rules one way or the other. So with that. Uh, Dan, anything else to add on Jackson versus King County? Nope. So we got that one wrong. And let's go back to another one we got right, which was Bearden versus Conagra. And this one was argued by recent guest Tim Eaton for the plaintiffs and friend of the show, uh, John Fitzgerald, uh, for the defendants, Conagra. Dan, yep. do you want to tell us about uh, about this case? There's a lot. There's a lot to this one. Yeah, th th this was a case that involved uh, trying to transfer 39 cases, Conagra's in Illinois, under doctrine of forum non well, not just not just in Illinois, but a Cook right. County resident, which is a big Cook deal. County resident, court. right? Um, uh, the injuries occurred across the country, as we talked about on I forget which episode of the the, the podcast. It's episode uh, sixty four. Sixty four, uh, but but the appellate court, the first district, decided that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in denying the motions to transfer these cases to uh, Cook County. Pat. Yeah, well, I, I th let's add a couple more things to this. So one of the things that was interesting, I mean, they, I will say this, they pilloried the defendants. Uh, this was not a, a friendly opinion to the defendants. Uh, several things. First, the defendants raised the issue that we can't name these third parties who we could potentially name because we don't have jurisdiction over them. And the court's like, we haven't named them. We haven't tried to name them. So right. we don't even know who they are. Then there was the, uh, I, as I said, a big deal was made out of, you guys are at home in Cook County. How are you saying it's inconvenient to litigate here? They also didn't say why it was inconvenient for their witnesses to come to Cook County. Uh, and that was their burden to show that it would be inconvenient. They really didn't put any weight on the medical and, and emergency medical technicians, uh, that the ability to get them to come or even respond. You know, they, they made a lot out of, you know, these people are going to testify remotely, this and that. Well, yeah, that's true, but you still have to get them to show up. And mm -hmm. under the current circumstances, or under any circumstances, we can't, you know, Illinois doesn't have subpoena power in New Mexico uh, or any of the other 20, uh, 20 other states where these incidents occurred. Um, you know, even, it was interesting, they talk about the all the cases and then the case in Wabash County, which is about 275 miles south of uh, of Cook County. They, they, you know, they, they kind of distinguish. This is the one case that occurred in Illinois, and then there are the rest of these cases. Right. Um, and even that one, they're like, we wouldn't transfer that one, uh, even though it occurred. Because one of the reasons is you guys are in Cook County. Are you guys are, yeah, Conagra, you're in Cook County. How can you complain about litigating a case here? Um, so the, uh, the, the caption of the case, as I noted in my LinkedIn post on the decision, is five pages um, right. of all these different cases that were filed. So the plaintiffs uh, get a very good result. Uh, obviously, yeah. being in Cook County is a very favorable jurisdiction. Um, of course. And uh, they they get a good result being able to stay here. This is not the last we've heard of this case. The PLA, no. I'm sure, is already being written. Uh, and I imagine, given the size of the case 
and the you know the, the defendant is Conagra, <laughs> a small little outfit. Um, I imagine that they will have a chance to be heard in the uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, I would think know, so. They, they, they've got a better chance than most uh, of being heard in the Supreme Court. So we may we may yet hear more about the Bearden versus Conagra case. Yep. Uh, so with that, let's talk about our predictions. Sure to go wrong on the cases we covered today. Give it what a little think bit. On Ewing and Webster. Well, let's take Ewing first because I think that okay. one's easier. That one's going back because so. it, it's it, it's it's the one with the standing issue. Yep. Uh, Webster, I, I think that's getting reversed too because I think she's pled enough to have standing. The question then is, does she win on the merits? Right. And it seemed that the court thought she fell within the category of uh, of the sixteen hundred in Ramirez as opposed to the sixty three hundred. So I, I think that gets reversed on the merits. I think so too. Um, and, that, so, and then again, whether, whether there's whether she can win on the merits, we'll see. But but yeah, I think it gets reversed. I think it gets reversed on the merits. Uh, whether she can prove it at trial, that's a different kettle of fish. Um, and then that brings us to American Hospital Association versus Becerra. The government's losing. I don't know how, but the government's right. losing. <laughs> I don't know how bad the government's going to lose. <laughs> I agree. But I think the government's losing. Government loses here. Yeah. So I, I think that's a reversal then because the D.C. Circuit yeah. agreed, with the, agreed with the government. So yep. um, that with that, that brings us to the uh, rule of the week, which is the Seventh Circuit. Tell us about this, Dan. Sure. And it's it's not the only circuit now. We're seeing this uh, uh, happen uh, around. Uh, I think the Ninth Circuit. I think uh, our friend Corey Webster posted that they're going remote as well. The rule of the week is uh, on December twenty eighth. I believe was the date uh, late last week. Uh, the Seventh Circuit issued an order that's returning oral arguments to remote at least through the end of January. Uh, we're starting to see jury trials again. I've I've seen postings and, and pats on some of these strings as well on LinkedIn about various states uh, postponing trials again with juries and things because of the uh, big spread of, of COVID. We see the Secretary of State is closing its offices, I think, through January 17th or something uh, because of the same thing. We're seeing this with airlines. And so, yeah, the Seventh Circuit issued an order. Like I said, uh, it's not the only uh, court of appeals Throughout the country, the Ninth Circuit for sure has done the same. They're going to have remote arguments again. And so I don't know about you, Pat, but it sure seems like we're headed back to March of 2020. Uh, and and uh, I don't know how long it's going to last or if we're going to get through Omicron quickly. Uh, but you're starting to see that with schools. We're starting to see it with travel, a lot of flights being canceled, uh, all kinds of things. And so that's the rule of the week. Um, and we'll stay tuned. Uh, one of my uh, friends on LinkedIn has a jury trial in January in Cook County. And she's asked if there's been any information. We haven't seen anything from Cook County. We did see Judge Evans last week. Another kind of rule did issue a thing that everybody has to be vaccinated, all staff and things that's going to go into effect sometime in January. And so yeah, Judge Evans is the chief judge of the circuit court of Cook County. So he's, County over the, he's, don't know. Yeah, he's over the whole, the whole system. Um, and, you know, so that's, I, I know there was a trial. I know of one tree. Give an example. This is an anecdote. Uh, Mid-December, a uh, med-mal trial that was being tried, and they had uh, COVID. They had to call a mistrial because they lost all. They lost too many jurors. Too many uh, jurors. They had to. They had to mistry the case. So that case is going to get retried at some point. But they were at least three or four days in to a med-mal trial uh, when they lost too many jurors to continue. So that's just one example of what can happen. And this yep. is really before. This was mid-December. Uh, about a week before Christmas, so this is even before the Omicron wave really hit. Um, and and the Seventh Circuit had, even though they were having in person, they were doing them hybrid. There were some were. situations where where advocates were appearing either via Zoom or phone. It was hard to tell sometimes. Um, and uh, at least one of the judges, the judges sometimes were appearing still remotely. Remote. Uh, Judge Rovner, for example, given her age, that's not a surprise. That she would be, uh, she's in her late 80s. Um, that's not a surprise that she would appear, continue to appear remote uh, for for the foreseeable future. So um, even even when the court was coming back in in person, she was she was remote. Um, that, that was clear. So with that, Dan, well, uh, 
Oh, one, one one mention. Uh, we've talked about uh, Judge Tom Thomas Mulray uh, frequently on this show, Pat. And as you and I both know, uh, he's the presiding judge for the commercial calendar. Uh, he is retiring this week, and so we wish him the best in his retirement. He announced it on social media in late December. He had sent me an email. Um, not sure what he's going to do in the future, but he uh, has been kind of a pioneer in, in the Cook Circuit Court of Cook County. Uh, which is Chicago, uh, with respect to uh, arbitration uh, programs and also with, with clearing up the docket that was severely behind when he first got on the bench in terms of the commercial calendar, in terms of speeding up trials. And so uh, we wish Judge Mulroy, who we've talked about extensively, an excellent uh, jurist, uh, the best in whatever he does going forward. Indeed. And, and he, like Dan, is also a past president of the Chicago Bar Association. He is. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I did not real. I missed that that he was uh, he was retiring. He'd been on, he'd been on the bench for over a decade. Years. Yeah, I was going to say it. Yeah, uh, and and was uh, was in the the commercial calendar, which is of the law division, but handles as the name would suggest commercial and professional liability matters uh, typically. So with that, we'll now take uh, we'll now t- uh, take our leave. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.